Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, I wanted to explore a little bit of aviation history in Battle Creek, Michigan. But it also affects Southwest Michigan because the stories are of that nature. The main focus will be on the Kellogg Airfield. But I also want to tell you the story of the... B-17 Flying Fortress that was named Snap, Crackle, and Pop. A name selected by its original pilot, who was an engineer at Kellogg Cereal Company. So, come along and join me. This is a fun and fascinating story that you're definitely going to want to hear. Now, this story is somewhat amazing, and there's going to be parts of it that make you wonder if it was really true, but it did actually happen. To begin with, before we get to that part of it, with the uh, the B-17 Flying Fortress story that has the amazing tale connected with it, I wanted to uh, give you a little bit of history on the W.K. Kellogg Airport. So, in September of 1924, the Battle Creek Chamber of Commerce signed a five-year lease on a farm with the option to purchase to establish an aviation field. Now, the airport officially opened in 1925 and was owned by W.K. Kellogg, who donated $60,000 to purchase the land option and pay for airport improvements and equipment over the first few years. So the airport received its first air mail flight in the summer of 1928. That was the first delivery of mail by air that came into the Battle Creek area. And the first regular passenger service occurred in 1929. Now, the first air traffic control tower that's out there at the Kellogg Airfield was installed at the airport in 1935, and it became the first of its kind in Michigan outside of Detroit. So that was quite significant from a historical perspective. Now, during the Second World War, the airfield was used by the U.S. Army forces. In August of 1943, the 394th Bombardment Group arrived in Battle Creek for training before they were dispatched overseas to the United Kingdom in 1944. And in 1947, the airport was designated as the base for the 172nd Fighter Squadron for the Michigan Air National Guard. But I want to back up a minute and talk about the 394th Bombardment Group. Now, the organization which constituted the 394th Bombardment Group was activated on the 5th of March, 1943, and they trained with B-26s. And all four squadrons of the group were under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Thomas B. Hall, who was briefly stationed at Ardmore Army Airfield for five weeks in July to August of 1943. The group was then again moved in August of that year to the Kellogg Airfield at Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, the air group was dispatched overseas to the Royal Air Force Borham Essex in the United Kingdom. And they were assigned to the 98th Combat Bombardment Wing of the 9th Air Force during World War II. Now, this particular airfield was just getting established when that group arrived. And so not all of the buildings were up. 
when they arrived with their planes. And the group marking was a white diagonal band across the fin and rudder of the airplanes. So the operations commenced about 12 days after the majority of the group had arrived in England. And the initial mission was flown on the 23rd of March of that year. And in the weeks that followed, the 394th was repeatedly sent to attack bridges in occupied France and the Low Countries, which led to the group being referred to as the Bridge Busters. And some of the statistics of this group, they went on a total of 96 missions and dropped 5,453 tons of bombs during those missions. So that was a considerable amount of activity during the time that they were in active duty. Now, one story that came out of that group of uh, the 394th was on August 9th, the lead B-26, which was piloted by Captain Daryl Lindsay, was hit by anti-aircraft fire, and the right engine was set on fire when the uh, the plane was struck. So although knowing that the fuel tanks were likely to catch fire and explode, Lindsay didn't waver from leading the bomb run or ordering his crew to bail out until after the bombs had been released. So the bombardier offered to lower the nose wheel so that Lindsay might escape through the nose hatch. But knowing the likelihood of his losing control of the airplane, if this was done, probably by the drag of the wheel being down, Lindsay ordered the bombardier to jump. And so Lindsay, he didn't escape the aircraft when it crashed. He was awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor, and he was the only 9th Air Force bomber crewman serving in the European Theater of Operations to receive that highest award for bravery during World War II. So that is some of the story of the 394th Bombardment Group that uh, flew into Battle Creek and landed at the Kellogg Airfield before heading out to Europe. Now today the WK Kellogg Airport is a city-owned public-use joint civil-military airport and it's just west of the central business district of Battle Creek in Calhoun County. Now the airport is accessible by road from Helmer Road and also is located within a few minutes drive of I-94. And in addition to general aviation, the airport supports air cargo and corporate flight operations. And it's the home to the Western Michigan University College of Aviation, as well as Duncan Aviation, the nation's largest family-owned aircraft refurbishing company and also the Waco Classic Aircraft Corporation. And Semco Energy Gas Company also has a presence out there. And the airfield is well known for the Battle Creek Field of Flight Air Show and Balloon Festival, which has become an annual event at the Kellogg Airport. Today, also, the 110th wing of the Michigan Air National Guard is stationed out there, and they use portion of the airport for that military installation. Now, this airport shouldn't be confused with the W.K. Kellogg Airport in Pomona, California, which was operated from 1928 to 1932, and that was then the largest privately owned airport in the country. This airport is in Battle Creek, Michigan, right here in the southwest Michigan area. But there is another story about World War II 
that comes out of Battle Creek. It's a connection to it. And that was what I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And that's the story of the B-17 Flying Fortress that had the nickname or the name on painted on it of Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Now, that was the nose art that was painted on the plane. Now, the story behind this is the plane was one of the first group of 40 B-17s deployed to England by the United States 8th Air Force. Now, the plane was named by its original pilot, who was Lieutenant Jacob Wayne Fredericks, and he had been an engineer at the Kellogg Cereal Company before he enlisted. And as the fate would have it, Lieutenant Fredericks and his crew took possession of the plane at the Kellogg Airfield in Battle Creek, Michigan, the city where Kellogg's cereal is based, in case you didn't know. And he was able to get Kellogg's in-house artist to paint the famous Snap, Crackle, and Pop trio from Kellogg's Rice Krispies cereal brand on the nose. So that was a fascinating coincidence and timing and opportunity for a little bit of Kellogg's and Battle Creek to go to war over in England. So because crews had to share equipment in early stages of the war, the crew of Lieutenant Arthur Adams was assigned to fly to the plane on a bombing mission over St. Nazaire, France, which was home of a major German submarine factory. And I'll get into that story a little bit. But first of all, I want to talk to you about some of their missions. So what were some of the missions of the Snap, Crackle, and Pop? Because there were only a few of them before disaster happened. The first mission that the crew undertook, and it was under the 8th Bomber Command, and it was on November 17th. 1942 and it was with 35 other planes and their job was to pound u-boat installations at saint nazaire and they hit it with 102 tons of bombs the next day on november 18th 1942 they were at it again and this time they flew against three different u-boat bases and There was different planes were separated out of the overall group, which consisted of about 52 planes or 51 planes in that wave of attack. So some of them attacked La Palice and another group of 13 attacked Laureate. Another group attacked uh, St. Nazaire. So I'm not sure which group Snap, Crackle, and Pop was, but they were on that mission. And then the plane didn't go on a mission again until December 12, 1942. And they were sent up with 17 planes, and bad weather prevented any large attack planned at the installations that were on a target near Cien, France. And so the next flight was on December 30th, 1942, and there was 40 planes in that operation, and they hit a submarine base at Lauriette, and the base had started to really show the continual bombardment from that attack because there had been a repeated attack. So that was a mission that Snap, Crackle, and Pop flew. And that was the last successful mission that they flew. The next time they flew was on January 3rd. 1943. Now, Snap, Crackle, and Pop was assigned to the 303rd Bombers Group, and Captain Fredericks and his crew had to rotate with another crew as they were sharing the same plane. And on that mission in January, 
the crew of Lieutenant Arthur Adams was flying the plane. Now, the 303rd's bomb groups, this was their ninth bombing mission as a unit, and it proved to be a costly mission. The group lost four aircraft to enemy air action, and that was a considerable amount of loss during that time of the war. And Snap, Crackle, and Pop was one of those planes, and they took a hit from anti-aircraft guns, and it hit pretty soundly. Now, there's an interesting story about the crew and the survivors. There were a few survivors, even though the plane went down. Three of the crew actually survived the crash. The first one was Lieutenant Glenn Harrington, who was the navigator of the crew, and he lost his leg to enemy gunfire in that uh, incident when the plane was hit. And he was captured after the he landed. So he had made it out of the plane and was captured, and he was taken to a POW camp. And he was the first of the American Air Force men to be repatriated or one of the first uh, um, group of men to be repatriated to England following the war. And he died in uh, 1987. The other one that they were not able to find out what happened to him after the war was uh, Sergeant J.I. Gordon, who had bailed out and became a POW. And he was known to have survived the war by interviews with other GIs, but they were never able to connect up with him when um, the museum that was writing the article about this story was putting it together. So they don't know what happened to him. But the most interesting story out of all of the crew was the ball turret gunner. He was Alan McGee, Sergeant Alan McGee. And when the plane was hit, he was tossed out of the burning aircraft. Apparently the explosion must have hit near the ball turret and his cover on the ball turret blew off. Now, if you have seen the movie Memphis Bell, you'll probably have a good idea of where the ball turret gunner was. He was in the belly of the airplane, and he had to crawl down, and it was usually the smallest crew member that was assigned to become a ball turret gunner because he had to fit into a very small space. And this gun would rotate around in 360-degree directions, and they would shoot at enemy aircraft that were attacking the bomb. So Sergeant Alan McGee gets thrown from the airplane, and he's at 20,000 feet, and he was not wearing a parachute. And he fell from the plane, and he was later interviewed to talk about his story. And he said that when he was in free fall, he prayed to God to save his life, and he said in his pleadings to God that I don't want to die because I know nothing of life. And that was his personal appeal to the Almighty in his words. After that, in the free fall, he lost consciousness and he crashed through the glass roof of the St. Nazaire Railroad Station. So he flew 20,000 feet and he crashed through the glass ceiling of this railroad station. And he would regain consciousness for the first time at a first aid station where he had been carried before he was taken to the hospital. And he said that he owed everything to a German military doctor who treated him while he was at that first aid station. And he said that the, uh, the doctor said to him, we are enemies, but I am first a doctor and I will do my best to save your arm. And that's what he said to him. Now he was barely conscious when he came around and was aware enough to hear and speak with the doctor, but 
He wasn't fully aware of the condition of his body, and apparently his arm was pretty badly damaged, and he also had a multitude of other injuries on his body. As you can imagine, going through a glass ceiling, he was cut all over the place and probably had some other broken bones and uh, lacerations of all kinds all over him. So he ended up getting taken to a German hospital, and he survived the war. And then many, many years later, on September 23rd of 1995, Alan McGee was accompanied by his wife, Helen, in a return trip to St. Nazaire to take part in a ceremony sponsored by French citizens dedicating a memorial to his seven fellow crewmen that were killed in the crash of the Snap, Crackle, and Pop. And the, the plane actually continued on and crashed in a nearby forest on that January 3rd day in 1943. And so the McGees were welcomed to France by the president of the American Memorial Association in France and escorted around to the various ceremonies. And one of them was the dedication of a very special monument, which was engraved with the names of the airmen that died in that crash. And after a mass ceremony at the crash site, the memorial was uncovered to the group that was there. And they were planting a tree of peace next to the memorial. So they placed the monument right at the crash site in that area of the forest. Now, during his visit to St. Nazaire, Allen was able to visit the Hermitage Hotel where he had been treated by the German doctor, who... By the way, he never, ever learned the name of the doctor because he was gone by the time he regained consciousness the next time he'd been turned over to some other doctors. So he never knew the name of the man who treated him in that first aid station, even doing research after the war. And he also was able to revisit the railroad station with its glass roof that had cushioned his fall 50 years before. And when he saw the railroad station, his only comment was he thought it was much smaller in real life, but apparently it was bigger than he remembered. But in fact, he never remembered any of the railroad station because he passed out. So he never saw the railroad station when he was conscious. Now, fragments of the snap, crackle, and pop still remain. During the war, when the plane crashed, the slogan, snap, crackle, and pop, that was painted on the nose was cut from the fuselage by the Germans, and they kept it through the remainder of the war as a war trophy, and it decorated the wall of a villa named Giorama, and it was an important property next to another building in St. Nazaire, which this was all German-occupied territory at that time. And it looked down, the building looked down from a cliff at the sea. So at the end of the war, before the Germans were captured, the occupying enemies threw the trophy of snap, crackle, and pop off the cliff along with other Royal Air Force aircraft bomber artifacts, which included a company crest that they had salvaged from the plane crash. And after the town was retaken by the Allies, the... Um, remnants of the snap, crackle, and pop were recovered from the rocks that were bordering the sea. And they now reside in a museum over in France. So that is an amazing story with a connection to Southwest Michigan. I just thought that would be a fun one to talk about as we go into Memorial Day weekend and remember and honor the veterans that served 
our country. And there was definitely a major connection with the flying fortresses and the bomber groups that flew through the Kellogg Airfield in Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, before we conclude today, I wanted to tell you some interesting news that, that came across my lines this past week about this podcast. And I thought I would share that with you listeners. I was sent an email by a blog site called Feedspot, and they had just completed the 100 Best Michigan Podcast article, which they published on May 20th of this year. And they wanted to notify me that my podcast made the list. So they sent me the link and they asked me to talk about it on this episode. So I told them that I would absolutely do so. So I came in at number 59 on their 100 Best Michigan Podcast list. And I'll put the link to that in the description because there's some other really interesting Michigan podcasts on this list and you might want to check those out as well. And I owe the popularity of this podcast all to you out there in the listening audience that love history and have supported this project of mine since I began. And I really do appreciate it. And I just wanted to uh, thank you. And hopefully next year when they do their 100 Best Michigan podcasts, I'm up near the top 10. Uh, but I at least made the top 60 on their 100 list. So that's quite something. Now, I also wanted to let you know something else about the podcast that has changed this week. If you are listening on Spotify, you can now sign up for a subscription, which is only a dollar a month, uh, 99 cents to be exact. And I'm going to be including some additional content that is available to subscribers only. This is a way that I can uh, share some additional information, but at the same time, it helps me with the revenue stream of supporting the podcast. So if you want to support the podcast in an easier way, you can just hit subscribe on Spotify, and I would greatly appreciate the support. And in doing so, I will try to include some interesting episodes that are maybe a little bit different, but expand on different areas about Michigan's past and perhaps cover stories from other parts of the state in those bonus episodes for you. So look out for that. So if you're listening on Spotify before you end off today, check it out. I'll put the link to that in the podcast description as well to make it easy for you to sign up and get yourself a subscription to the podcast. And once again, it's only 99 cents a month, but if enough of my listeners were to do that, it would certainly help, uh, offset some of the costs that it takes to produce this podcast on a weekly basis. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. And of course, as always, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute to hit the review section of whatever app that you are listening on and leave me a review and maybe a good old five-star rating would be wonderful. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.